I don't know what the future is going to bring. Maybe I can live 20 years and it still won't reoccur yet. I mean, maybe I'm imagining things, but we don't know. And I may not have lung cancer. So it's, this is still a very, it's, it's like a mystery to me. You're listening to Lifespan. My name is Jackie Wolf. In March 2009, when she was 79, my mother learned through a happenstance chest x-ray taken during a routine annual physical that she had a mass on her left lung. But she was asymptomatic. She felt perfectly fine. Although her primary care physician tried to explain to her the seriousness of his discovery, she dismissed the implication of what he tried to tell her. When she called me to report the results of the x-ray, she described their conversation. She said to me, He told me, I'm so sorry, you've had a wonderful life. She laughed and said, he acts like I'm dying. Three months later in June 2009, when my mom and dad came to Athens, Ohio for my daughter's, their granddaughter's high school graduation, I asked my mom to be on my monthly radio show to discuss the medical decisions she'd been making about her illness. She was still asymptomatic. This is a portion of our conversation in the radio studio that day. One of my brothers, the only one of her four children who lives near her, joined us for the conversation. So, Mom, I asked you to do this show, and I actually was a little bit nervous about asking you because I didn't know if you feel comfortable talking about it. But you immediately said, this is a subject that needs airing, and I wish Oprah would do a show about it. Absolutely, absolutely. I I feel that uh, lung cancer has been neglected. Uh, Somehow it, it... doesn't sound as romantic as breast cancer. I mean, that might be a funny way of putting it. I think there's a legacy there because lung cancer has been so connected with smoking that people tend to say, well, it might be the person's fault, which of course is absolutely absurd because for so many years, first of all, the tobacco companies even hid the dangers of cigarette smoking. Oh, absolutely. And there was a real romance attached to it it's as a child. It's also highly addictive. I didn't realize it. had no idea. But yeah. I think that that's one of the reasons that it probably hasn't been discussed as much as something like breast cancer. You're mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's been about three months since you got the diagnosis, completely unexpected, because you had no symptoms. Right. And not only that, I hadn't smoked for 30 years. And that's a long, long time. And it was just completely out of my mind, you know. So it was a real, real, absolutely surreal experience when the doctor talked to me over the phone after looking at the x-ray and was just lamenting and so sad and said, oh, you've had such a happy life. And I thought, oh, my Lord, I've got to console you. What is this? What are you, who, what are you talking about? It was about? almost like he was saying goodbye to you. Yes, I was, it was just... Horrible. And we should say, too, that he accidentally found it. He didn't do the chest x-ray because you had symptoms. Right. It was just part of a routine physical exam. Exactly. I had no cough. I had no breathing problems. He just is doing this routinely now. And it was a godsend that he did because there were no symptoms at all. And And since then, you had, you saw a thoracic surgeon Mm -hmm, very quickly. mm -hmm. And right, you've within had, the week from finding out about that. So half of your left lung has been removed. Right, right. And unfortunately, um, there were two masses, and that's all gone now. It was all excised in April, beginning of April. Right. That's my brother Kevin. As the only one of my parents' four children who lived near them, he accompanied them to all my mother's doctor's appointments and medical treatments. Not only that, he also recorded all my mom's appointments so he could share every detail with the rest of us. 
I'm self-employed. So I'm able to just take time off to be able to take them around. The time you've had to take off has been considerable. Yeah. I mean, usually when I take time off, it's a whole day. It's not, it's not like I can just go, you know, I, I don't go away just for an hour because even if an appointment is at noon or two o'clock, I'm usually having to get to mom and dad's house, you know, by sometime in the morning. I may be running errands for them as well. So I'm kind of juggling all of those things. I live about 45 minutes from, you know, from mom and dad. And usually the appointments are 45 minutes to an hour away from where they live. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely driving around quite a bit. Yeah, so we're talking yeah. about an entire day. Let let me also say too. I mean, there's so many decisions to be made when you have a diagnosis like this. Absolutely. Because yeah. first of all, you, first of all, you had to decide on the surgery. Right. Right. That, that was an easy decision. Absolutely sure. To have that out was important. The unfortunate thing was that there was a lymph node involved, which put it in stage two. Stage one, he would have said, that is terrific. We'll take this out, and then I'll see you once a year or how often with the chest X-ray to make sure nothing has reoccurred. Uh, Having the lymph node going to stage two means that you have involvement still just in the lungs. It has not spread. I had a PET scan. Everything was clear. Nothing has spread outside. However, PET scans only identify uh, tumors and things that are large enough. If it's microscopic, there is no way I've discovered of knowing if anything has spread outside of the lungs. I have discovered that nobody knows the route that lymph nodes take. And if they have any microscopic little things left, They don't know when it would come back, if it will, if the body can take care of it. And because of that, I was referred to an oncologist. He was a very uh, young, charming, nice, very intelligent guy. And we just saw him a few days ago. And um, it's all very fresh in my mind. I'm 79 years old and almost going to be in December 80. And he said, you are very chronologically 79, but... um, You are very youthful for your age, and you're healthy. You don't have diabetes. We never could offer any kind of chemotherapy to anybody who has diabetes. Um, You don't have heart condition. Um, You uh, are basically in healthy shape except for this one thing happening to you. And because of that, we can offer chemotherapy. Then he proceeded to tell me some of the things that can happen with having it. And the whole thing became very terrifying, very strange, because even with taking it, I could very well get it back. And yet I might be left with kidney problems. I may be left with... uh, um, Hearing impairment. He said nerve damage that would cause hearing and problem. And also the fact of bone marrow problems and And even getting leukemia. So what am I to do? So here you are now faced with this terrifying dilemma that you just described. What what do you do next? And the decision has to be yours because it has to be one that you are completely comfortable with. Right. And the physician himself said... Whatever you decide, he wanted me to decide the next time I see him in June 22nd. He doesn't want me to take any longer than that. And if I decide not to do it, it's fine. That's the way he put it. Don't look back, he said. 
which was very, it was comforting. They give four treatments, but most people, he said, want only take three. They just say, I'm through. And with the chemo, it's not all, it's it's a 40% chance of recurrence. Yeah, which, it, it, it doesn't seem great. That's only a average. We're individual people, and you don't know what's going to happen to each individual. He admits that. He knows that. You know, he, he can't give me an accurate thing. He said, I can't cure you. Kevin, you're an actuary. Right. And what you do for a living are figure the odds on all kinds of things. So you've done a lot of reading um, on some of the, um, the studies that have been done on lung cancer um, Correct. treatments. Do you right. want to talk about that for, for a minute, the kind of things you've discovered? Yeah. The, one of the things that these studies tend to do or uh, information that they include is the type of people who are included in the studies. They uh, often exclude people over age 75, though sometimes the median age is often around 60 or so. They usually don't provide information that distinguishes male versus female relative to the results. They also um, uh, are very small populations. The studies are often about a thousand people or less, uh, usually meaning that whatever they develop um, has an error of about plus or minus three or four percent. Uh, the conclusions that these studies have is that the uh, extended life is in the range of about 10 to 15 percent. We all accept chemotherapy as a fact of life if, if you have cancer. And yet, you're reading these studies, you're describing that you're finding what exactly does, does it do? Does it, is it really significantly increase your odds of no cancer recurrence? Is it worth it? And the side effects are not insignificant. Kidney right. failure is no fun. Right. Um, as far as prior knowledge goes, no, I hadn't looked at any of these types of studies before. When it comes to situations like this, you have to start dealing with the individual event, the individual category of concern, You know, which in this case is lung cancer, small cell lung cancer. And so, yeah, I was looking at the studies and found that there are definitely good websites that one could go to to find information, but it is very hard to read the studies. Uh, it's easier to read their brief conclusions, uh, which sometimes are frankly very ambiguous as to what it shows. I think we have to remember all cancers are different. There's some like uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma or oh. something where th that is they do really uh, – cure, that it's, the medication There's is important. There's some that are yeah. very highly curable. Right, but it's just with lung cancer. People who have stage three and four, well, their options are not surgery at all, and their only option is chemotherapy. And the odds are not good when you're at stage three or four. Yeah, and right. We're more familiar with that. When I was younger and I heard of lung cancer, I thought that's the death knoll for that person. But I didn't realize that they just weren't caught early enough. You have about two weeks to make the decision now about yeah, chemotherapy. Right. And I mean, do, do you have an idea now how you're going to think through this decision? Well, I'm going to go through the literature he gave me. He gave me a lot of literature dealing with the different drugs and the combination of drugs. And he said, we watch these very closely. And if someone gets too nauseated, we're going to change to the sister drug of this basic drug. 
you don't lose your hair. It gets maybe a little thinner, but you don't really lose it. And But then the other bad things were much worse. So I'm going to weigh what he, literature he gave me and um, just try to think this thing out sensibly. And I'm kind of going to the fact that 50-50 doesn't sound so bad if I'm healthy. In other words... I'm healthy now, and I don't know what the future's going to bring. And it may be in the next 10 years, maybe I can live 20 years, and it still won't reoccur yet. I mean, maybe I'm imagining things, but we don't know, and I may not have lung cancer. And and so it's this is still a very—it's it's like a mystery to me. Talked to my mother on that radio show in June 2009. She was frightened, but also optimistic. Shortly after returning home, she did opt to undergo chemotherapy with high hopes. But I learned later that during her first visit with him, when her oncologist told her, I can't cure you, that statement is oncologist's standard language for a terminal illness, what oncologists refer to among themselves as a warning shot to patients. Some patients hear it, most don't. My mother certainly didn't. Between March 2009, when we had our first radio conversation, and the next radio conversation I had just with my brother shortly before our mother's death in the spring of 2010, she embraced every recommendation her doctors offered to her, anticipating that each one would cure, or at least beat back for many years, the lung cancer. Here is a portion of that conversation, almost a year after the one you just heard. By then, my mother was in hospice care. We begin by talking about the change in our mother's prognosis after an oncologist she consulted for a second opinion found a spot on her liver. The cancer had metastasized. And then they found um, a spot on the liver, and after that point there was discussion about chemotherapy, and, and then she had four rounds of chemotherapy. I guess the indications were that that spot probably had been too small to have been found initially. Her mother had been so healthy, so vibrant, a very youthful 79-year-old when she was diagnosed. She remained asymptomatic for months after the diagnosis. She, you know, continued all of her activities. There was no pain. Um, She went out and, you know, went to theater and events with friends. In fact, until the last three months of her life, the only symptoms our mother had were from the cancer treatments. The treatment was definitely making her tired and uh, giving her some nausea to the chemotherapy treatments. When she found out the cancer had spread, we made sure that she made all the medical decisions. We offered advice, but she made the final decisions. We did some research on the types of medicines that she was taking and also about the uh, chemotherapy, you know, side effects and, and those sorts of things, which, you know, which we gave to her. And she opted for, there were different levels of, um, of chemotherapy, and she opted for probably the kind of the middle level with, without the extreme side effects. Because she chose the milder treatment, she didn't lose her hair, she continued to eat normally, and, as Kevin said, she was able to continue her everyday activities. At some point, her oncologist decided the chemotherapy wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. They did, um, every three weeks, uh, give her either a CAT scan or an MRI to look to see if 
things had changed. And the first CAT scan, it looked like things hadn't changed. The second, it also looked like things had pretty much been stayed the same. You know, the tumors, uh, like on her liver, uh, and uh, there was a spot or two on her spine, hadn't changed. It hadn't grown. And so they thought, you know, at least it's in a stable state. But after she quit the chemo, went on um, for another CAT scan or MRI or two, there was suddenly a lot more growth. There was maybe four or five or six appearing on the spine. And so things got more serious. And she had also an additional scan, which looked further up and looked, looked at her brain as well. At that point, her brain scan looked clean, so her oncologist suggested another treatment, an oral medication called Tarceva. Tarceva is used for stage 4 lung and pancreatic cancers after a failed round of chemotherapy. It's an expensive medication, about $4,000 a month. Mom, being 80 years old, is covered by Medicare, uh, but they rapidly went through what they called the donut hole. The standard benefits for Medicare Part D um, covers uh, a, a person has to pay like the first uh, now it's about the first three hundred dollars as a deductible. Then seventy five percent of the next two thousand or so dollars are covered by Medicare. After that point, there's a four thousand dollar gap where Medicare does not cover it at all, and the person has to pay out of their own pocket for that coverage. Where, where Medicare is not covering anything, that's, called, that's been labeled the donut hole. The Tarceva began at the very end of the year. So, you know, at least timing-wise, the way, the way it worked out is that um, they burned through it quickly, so that became a $4,000-plus expense to them. And then come January, it became, you know, once again, they started a new donut hole. So, you know, so come January, they quickly you know, burned through another 4,000 plus. They've burned through it twice, once in 2009 and 2010 as well. We're an educated family, especially about medicine. We each have unique medical experience. I'm a historian of medicine. Kevin's an actuary specializing in health care costs. Another brother is a journalist who has worked the health beat. Another is an insurance executive specializing in health insurance fraud. So we made sure we did our research when our mother was making treatment choices. We wanted to know how effective is the suggested treatment. We looked at the studies. Finding that uh, lung cancer to begin with, which this is called non-small cell lung cancer, has a very poor prognosis. Um, the typical lifespan, once a person is diagnosed with it, you know, ranges from about seven months. Well, it, it certainly can be less than seven months, but the median is uh, seven months, which means half the people uh, live less than seven months, half the people live more than seven months. We should mention that our mother has lived 14 months since her diagnosis, but her cancer was caught by accident. It was caught by a chance chest x-ray. She had no symptoms. I would guess that this seven-month median life expectancy is for people who receive a diagnosis because they had symptoms and saw a doctor. When people have, like, heavy coughs or, or people start having some pains that they had never had before. And mom, as, as you said, and as she found, was totally asymptomatic. There was no, there was no pain. 
it was just, let's have a chest X-ray, and, and, and these showed up. It's also one of those cancers, one of the few cancers that almost always metastasizes to the brain as well. That is what has now happened to mom. Beginning of March, they also did another scan and found that it had metastasized to the brain. Whatever drugs are used in chemotherapy does not travel to the brain. Our mother belonged to a generation that listened to doctors. The doctor was the expert. You did not question the doctor. Sometimes, at least for me, there was frustration in that when I would try and discuss some of these things, like the side effects or the issues, or, or are there other things that you might want to do with your life other than go through these treatments, it was difficult. It, you know, there was no really breaking through um, her view that uh, she would follow whatever the doctors were saying. The last 14 months of her life have revolved around nothing but medical treatments. It was actually the hardest for Kevin, because he was the child who was right there, and he was the one who looked at the studies more closely than any of us. So his frustration was completely understandable. He was trying to tell her, this looks like it won't be good for you at all, and it's really going to affect your quality of life. It's hard to put yourself in other people's shoes, um, uh, especially when you're dealing with life and death issues. But, but for me, you know, I... And, and because I've looked at these sorts of studies for a long time, I mean, my, my view is, is, that, is that sometimes you have to step back and just say, well, I'd rather be going to the movies or I'd rather be, you know, enjoying things by traveling to places that I've always wanted to see but never have had the chance to see them, you know, instead of going through all of the side effects that, you know, that, that play out here. In March 2010, a scan showed the cancer had metastasized to our mother's brain. They found at least two um, uh, noticeable tumors, which probably means that, uh, that there could be lots. Because, again, it takes millions of cells for, you know, for these tumors to be picked up by, you know, by the scans. The oncologist immediately referred our mother to a radiation oncologist who suggested whole brain radiation therapy. We, meaning us four children and our father, did not want her to undergo that treatment. But the radiation oncologist told her that the radiation would make her brain inhospitable to cancer. At least, that's the way our mother interpreted his recommendation. She repeated that often, that the radiation would make her brain inhospitable to the cancer cells. And the radiation oncologist had scared her by conjuring up a horrifying picture of the cancer cells in her brain, rendering her unable to talk and ending up paralyzed, completely bedridden. The best thing for her is if she's in pain, and there's something that can help reduce the pain, then maybe that's worth doing. In fact, at that point, the rest of us were saying, now is the time to call in hospice. But our mother did opt for the whole brain radiation therapy with devastating effects. She died on June 15, 2010, less than three months after beginning that treatment. In treating her untreatable illness, doctors removed a lobe of our mother's left lung, administered four infusions of a chemotherapy agent combination, carboplatin olympta, prescribed four months' worth of the debilitating drug Tarceva, and, after the lung cancer spread to her brain, a radiation oncologist administered 13 whole brain radiation therapy treatments and eight neck-spine-directed radiation treatments. To monitor the 15-month illness that doctors recognized as terminal by month four, 
Physicians also had my mother undergo 15 CT scans, three PET scans, 12 X-rays, and seven MRIs. After her death, my brother Kevin and I talked about our mother's experience and its implications for terminally ill patients, their families, and the U.S. healthcare system. And we didn't just talk, we did something even better. We wrote an article published by Milbank Quarterly in December 2013. In this conversation, shortly after the article appeared, we began by talking about why we wrote the article. I did a lot of research after mom died in June of 2010 because I was just concerned about what the doctors had said the treatment and the treatments that uh, our mother had versus what might be out there, what the studies might be showing. Uh, and, it was, and I was getting more and more um, troubled as the treatments went on because it seemed like no treatment was very successful. And, and I was just getting more concerned with whether it made sense for her to even be treated or whether it made more sense for her to seek, um, you know, comfort and like, like uh, hospice-type care or, and or um, uh, start enjoying her life rather than spending all of her time, you know, being treated. Mom remained an optimist throughout. Part of that reason, I think, is because she had no actual symptoms from, you know, from the lung cancer until... March of 2010, uh, a year after she had been diagnosed. Even though my mother didn't understand she had a terminal illness, her oncologist, and we had a conversation with him at the very end of her life in which he said, oh, I knew by June of 2009, as soon as we saw that spot on her liver, I knew that that was a terminal illness. And yet, for the entire course of her illness, she was offered treatment after treatment after treatment, MRIs, CT scans, PET scans, x-rays, to monitor the course of the terminal illness. The message she was getting was, this is a treatable illness. We're constantly monitoring to see if your tumors have shrunk. Right. And, and throughout the whole time, uh, mom had been uh, an optimist feeling like that there's nothing impending here. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were, there were a few occasions where she spoke about others as having terminal illness and never equating that to herself. When I realized how little she understood about her illness, she and I were talking on the phone, and she was telling me about a childhood friend of hers who also had lung cancer, who lived in California. And then at the end of the story of her friend's illness, she said to me, oh, but her cancer is completely different from mine. And I said, oh... She doesn't have adenocarcinoma? And our mother said, oh, no, no, she does. And I said, well, what's different about her cancer? And she said, well, her cancer is terminal. And I just, I, I just, the con I di didn't even know how to respond um, to her interpretation of doctor's messages. I didn't know how to contradict that. Um, but it was the first time I, I totally understood that she had no idea that she had a terminal illness. And by the time she said that, we knew the cancer had spread to her liver and spine. We speak about her being optimistic, but we could also just as easily speak about her being in denial. 
But when we listened to the tapes of the doctor's conversations with her and transcribed them, it also made sense she felt that way because the doctors were being exuberant in their optimism. They responded to everything with, here's the next thing we can try. Never at any point did any doctor explain that once the cancer had metastasized, that they were dealing with a completely different scenario. There are cancers that are highly treatable, but lung cancer is not one of those cancers. Lung cancer is usually so deadly, it doesn't matter when it's caught. But no one explained to our mother that when the surgeon removed the left lobe of her lung in early 2009, the cancer might very well already have metastasized. And two months after the surgery, that became clear that it had indeed metastasized. At that point, you know, she was interested in um, getting treatments. And then the doctor, uh, after her chemotherapy, indicated that the liver spot uh, liver tumor had maybe shrunk a little, uh, and that, you know, heartened mom. That's when they did a scan and found that she had some spots on her brain, and then she quit the Tarceva. And at that point, she went to see a radiation oncologist to talk about whole brain radiation therapy. She still was hoping for a cure. She still was looking for a cure and hoping that... Um, the radiation would, would cure the cancer in her brain. Yep. She had 13 segments of whole brain radiation therapy and also eight segments on her neck. Scheduled for 13, but she refused the last five because she was in so much pain and had trouble swallowing. Due to the radiation burns, we think now. She even went to the emergency room because the throat pain from the neck radiation was excruciating. And then she had seven-day steroid treatment from the emergency room. It was a horrible experience for all of us, death from lung cancer. Nothing could have prepared me for how, for how difficult it is. But the whole brain radiation therapy um, made it even more difficult. At least that, that was our perspective, that within weeks of the therapy, she could barely walk. She couldn't dress herself. Her personality had changed quite a bit. She was very docile and, you know, falling asleep at the kitchen table with a spoon in midair. And food had no taste for her. I mean, she, uh, it, it, it wrecked her appetite. So, yeah, so one of the few pleasures she had left had been destroyed by the whole brain radiation therapy. You discovered, in looking at studies about whole brain radiation therapy, that especially for um, patients who have cancer that is metastasized due to non-small cell lung cancer, that their survival rates, I mean, most people who begin the therapy are dead within just a couple of months. There are some prognostic tests that uh, doctors could do based on the status of the patient and based on where our mother fell during that time is that she was in the range of about one to four months expected survival. And she did pass away three months after her treatment started. One of the hardest things was that we, we really wanted her to go into hospice long before she did. The only time the doctors ever discussed hospice care with her was when we would bring it up. And even though the doctor had known that she, w she had a terminal illness in March 2009, she didn't go into hospice until April 2010. Right. Uh, and, and that, frankly, was because I pushed for it. The physical toll on our mother from all this was severe. 
Her symptoms from severe diarrhea to nausea to acne to throat pain to inability to taste food, and at the end, the radiation-induced dementia were all caused by cancer treatments. But the financial cost was equally excessive. The healthcare system billed our parents, their private insurance company, and Medicare almost half a million dollars. It was ultimately negotiated down to about $170,000. Yeah, $177,000. The high monetary costs at the end of our mother's life were not unusual. 25% of all Medicare dollars go to care in the last year of life. But for patients and their families, it's not only the monetary toll, it's also the emotional and physical toll of overtreatment that comes at a terribly high cost. Our mother's saga hints at how physicians can better help patients make medical decisions at the end of their lives that are less damaging to them and less costly to the healthcare system. In the last days of her life, my mother's oncologist admitted to me that whole brain radiation therapy had not been a good decision in my mother's case, even as he added, you just never know. But then he admitted a moment later that he did know. No matter the treatment or series of treatments, our mother did not have long to live. Her oncologist knew this by early June 2009 when he discovered a spot on her liver. Yet the automatic offer of treatment continued almost until her death in mid-June 2010. On the other hand, when terminally ill patients receive honest and thorough assessments from their physicians, and thus are more apt to reject futile treatment and choose palliative care earlier rather than later, they enjoy a better quality of life than patients who do not. They also have significantly lower health care costs. These lower costs benefit families long after the patient is gone. Medical expenses are a factor in more than 60% of personal bankruptcies in the United States. Physicians are wrong when they tell terminally ill patients that doing something, in other words, pursuing treatment, is better than doing nothing. Nothing usually meaning choosing hospice care instead of treatment. Although this claim is a common one, and more than one of our mother's physicians made the claim, it demands universal rethinking. Studies now show that hospice care, in alleviating patients' pain and providing daily support, not only to patients but also to their families, actually extends life, in some cases for longer than standard cancer treatments. I'm speaking as a family member, not just a social scientist who works at a medical school, when I say that we need a broad rethinking in how we approach end-of-life care in the United States. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. If you'd like to read the article that I wrote with my brother, Kevin Wolf, you can find a link to the article in the description of this podcast.